0: Bible's with you. I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 39, please. Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39 brings us back into the story of Joseph. Uh, His story is really quite the contrast from uh, chapter 38, from what we looked at last week, where we meet his brother Judah. Uh, The last time that we heard anything about Joseph was way back in Genesis chapter 37, which described him as a 37-year-old kid uh, who was, because of his, he was his father's favorite child, he uh, was hated by his brothers. So much so that they, they stripped him of his clothes as well as his dignity, throwing him into a dried-out cistern. And after deciding not to murder him, they decided instead to sell him into slavery and he was carted off by the ishmaelites only to be put on the slave trade in egypt psalm 105 describes joseph at this point like this joseph was sold as a slave his feet were hurt with fetters chains his neck was put in a collar of iron. If there's ever any time or example of when someone felt completely alone, this would have been it. 17 years old, sold by his own brothers, forced into slavery, sent into a foreign land where he knows no one and doesn't even speak their language his father who was one of the only people that that truly loved him and truly cared for him thought that he was dead so the chances of him sending out a search party for joseph was zero it wasn't happening he's alone he is scared And the last thing that we heard about him was that he was sold off to a man named Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard of Egypt. However, in the midst of this this tragedy and this sad story and this evil done to him, Joseph flourished. And he flourished because he knew something And if we took hold of what Joseph was captivated by, you and I could flourish in any situation ourselves. And what Joseph knew and took comfort in was that here in Egypt in chains, he wasn't really alone. God was with him. Joseph could get through this new life which was carved out for him by God's providence and by God's plan because the Lord was with him. The book of Genesis was written to uh, a group of people who were wandering in the wilderness questioning where their life was heading, where their next meal would come from, and whether or not the Lord was truly with them. And even though Genesis 39 is literal history, it was recorded for them to take comfort that the Lord was indeed with them in all circumstances. And the same is true for you and for me this morning, that the overarching theme of this chapter is that God's people can take comfort in God's presence with them in success and in trials and in suffering. Those are our three things that we're going to look at today. The first, again, is that we need to rejoice in God's presence during success. We need to rejoice in God's presence in the midst of success. You know, every so often you, uh, you encounter one of these, uh, these people. It uh, doesn't matter if it's a, a guy or a girl, but you, you just can't help but like them. Uh, you know, it's just not you. It, it seems like everybody likes them. You know, They nobody has anything bad to say about them. They're just a good person. And further, even though it's sort of annoying, they, they kind of have the Midas touch. That everything they do turns to gold. Everything that they do, they do very, very well. But then when you see the, the past, the facade of perfection, and their character just... Endears you to them. And Joseph was one of those kind of guys. Everywhere Joseph went, everyone seemed to like him. He was favored by his father, his slave master, his slave master's wife, which we'll get to here in just a, a few minutes. All the way down to Pharaoh himself. And, and it sort of begs the question, how is Joseph such a good guy... When his brothers are so terrible. How is it that Joseph uh, that we've read that he's hated by his brothers for being favored by his father as this good, naive, good-natured personality, can be so unlike his brothers? And we ask the, the same question today in families that have more than more than one child. Uh, we can probably be safe in asking, how is it that these two children, or three children, or four children, or six children, or if you're the Duggars, 50 children. How do, these, uh, how do these kids that have all grown up in the same house, with the same parents, the same parenting style, the same shared expectations and experiences, and yet they have distinctly different personalities And outcomes and choices in life. Well, we can't answer that necessarily uh, well in the time that we have today. Genesis 39 tells us that it's clear why Joseph is different than all of his brothers. There is a phrase in Genesis 39 that's repeated four times. And that repetition is the big billboard sign for us to look at what is the purpose of what's going on here in this chapter. And it says that the Lord was with Joseph. That's the difference for him. The Lord was with him. The first six chapters of of six verses of chapter 39 describe the first days of joseph's captivity verse one says now joseph had been brought down to egypt and potiphar an officer of pharaoh the captain of the guard an egyptian had bought him from the ishmaelites who had brought him down there okay so Let's let's push pause. Let's call time out here for just a second. Moses, the author of Genesis, is giving us some some pretty incredible details uh, that we need to take note of regarding this person who bought Joseph. The guy's name is Potiphar, which in Egyptian means "he who Ra has given." Ra was the the Egyptian sun god and uh, and was the most important god in the pantheon of of the Egyptian uh, spiritual life. His name is an, uh, sort of analogous to the Greek word uh, Theodore, which, uh, which means God's gift. And so here it is that uh, this guy named Potiphar, he who is God's gift to the world, um, and we see this sort of backwards thing happening here. Potiphar isn't necessarily a gift to Joseph. Joseph. But Joseph is rather God's gift to Potiphar. And these roles are completely reversed. Further, this isn't some chump peasant that, uh, that purchased Joseph. This is the captain of the guard. This is a guy who is in, who is in uh, Pharaoh's joint chiefs of staff. There's no coincidence here. This is the Lord working This is the Lord with Joseph. Verse 2 The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer of his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So it's significant that this is happening in Genesis chapter 39, it's here that we are are finally starting to see the Lord's promises to Abraham that was all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. We're starting starting to see it not only take root, but begin to actually uh, start seeing some some production from what God has, has promised. It's starting to bloom. Back in chapter 12, we read this promise to Abraham. God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we go through the narrative of Genesis, we see that Jacob's 12 sons begin sort of this blessing. To, uh, to make his nation uh, come about. But now in a very micro sense, we see Joseph here uh, being a blessing to the nations. Yes, he is in slavery. Yet notice again, verse three tells us, his master saw that the Lord was with him. So even though Joseph is in captivity, it was always part of God's plan to bring about the glory of the knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of God throughout all of the earth. And he is doing it right here in the person of Joseph in the most powerful nation at the time, Egypt. So the Lord was with Joseph. He gave Joseph this likable personality he endowed joseph with a work ethic and success in his work and this verse does a good job of reminding us that we can do nothing apart from the lord's blessing jesus tells us this in, in john chapter 15 verse 5 when he says uh, that I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's also helpful to remember here because we can forget this detail in the midst of his success. Joseph's only a teenager here. He's a kid who just got ripped away from his family. But he is one extraordinary teenager as it is clear that as God is with him, man, he's with God too. He has put God on the throne of his life and God is honoring that. He didn't complain. He didn't run. He took hold of what Paul would write one day to slaves during Paul's time in Colossians chapter three, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the lord and not for men so we need to rejoice in god's presence for our success but we also need to be careful because i realize the danger of how i worded that that point because it's easy to think that if the lord is with us and that if we are faithful then god will bless us with worldly success that our houses will go well, we'll have great marriages, we'll, uh, we'll have nicely ordered families and a nicely ordered house and a nice 401k and a weekend cabin on the lake and, and so on and so forth. That's not God's definition of success. Having the best of the best is not what God had intended for us. And we need to reassess our definition of success. In the first few verses, we need to measure our success, not just in terms of our faithfulness, but faithfulness in spite of our circumstances. And we need to measure our success by how God's presence with us leads us to bless the lives lives of others. Success is shown in how we love and treat our neighbors and how we witness the gospel to a world that doesn't know Jesus. So let's rejoice in God's presence in our success of of giving up ourselves for the good of our families, for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our co-workers and so many others who don't right now currently love Jesus. But need to know Him, and be saved by Him. And secondly, we need to cling to God's presence in trials and temptations. We need to cling to God's presence in, in trials and in temptations. You know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't feel like I need to convince you that uh, this past year is is really done a number on us all. It's been really hard. The COVID-19 pandemic has, has wreaked havoc in every single area of life. As of yesterday, we have 532,000 new graves in America to mark the physical extent of covid more marriages are broken than i have ever seen in my 10 years as a pastor though they haven't been marked by the cdc or the who as pandemics depression and anxiety are higher and more rampant than we've seen ever suicide and suicide attempts are are on the rise and now we're we're a year out from the declaration of this pandemic and we're a year out of um, from where everything shut down, and we're getting tons of data on how this year has affected our communities and our culture with the isolation that many have felt. There's a reason why God said in Genesis chapter 2 uh, it is not good for man to be alone. We are meant, divinely created to be people who are in community with one another, especially those who love us and support us. And when we are in such difficult times, for many of us, we are easy prey to temptation. For Joseph, it was an opportunity to cling closer to the promises of God That God was indeed with him. Now, verses 7 through 18, uh, they sort of dominate the sermons and the commentaries that you see on on chapter 29. It's all about uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife and the struggle that is there, and that's part of it. But more so, we see that God is with Joseph even in this struggle. The second part of verse 6 states a problem that uh, many of us wish we had. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This young guy with a tan body and ripped muscles and good looking. We live in a culture that is sick with its pursuit of beauty and youth. And in pursuit of feeling and looking beautiful and young, there are certain problems that come with being an attractive person. Joseph experienced this with the seductive Mrs. Potiphar. Look at me with uh, look with me in verse seven. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said lie with me now that's a hebrew euphemism did i get that right that word euphemism it's a cultural expression (laughs) and i think you can guess what she is pointing at here history tells us that egyptian women were quite promiscuous and this woman here is following suit she's particularly persistent uh, verse 7 seems to record her first attempt with Joseph, and he responds now in verse 8. Notice how he responds. He sa- but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph gives three compelling reasons why this is not a good idea. Her husband has been very good to him. He's a slave and he's well taken care of. To do this would ruin everything good that he has right now. But the most powerful reason that Joseph gives is that to do so would be a wicked sin against God. In other words, he doesn't refuse her for pragmatic reasons. That's how we often and the reasons why we often don't do things. Well, it will make my life worse. Well, what if I get caught? What if this? What if that? It's just not worth the hassle. And those are good reasons to withhold from the temptations that we face. But we need to take heed that the reason that we say no to sin is because we fear God. We reject wickedness because to do so would be to forget what David wrote in Psalm 51. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." Friends, I fear that modern Christianity has, in its attempt to domesticate God, put the displeasure of God uh, under lock and key. If we are in Christ, we don't reject sin necessarily because we're afraid of God's wrath, but because it displeases Him. When was the last time... That you asked, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Most of us here aren't going to have a dominant woman like Mrs. Potiphar, or maybe even a man for that instance, urging us in such a way. But every day you and I are being seduced by something. Maybe it's something in a bottle. Maybe it's rolled up in a little paper and smoked. Maybe it's something to gaze at on the computer screen. Or maybe it's that tidbit that you heard about the neighbor that you just feel that you have to share with everybody else. Or slander. Or maybe you're tempted with money in a certain way. Or popularity, or keeping up with the Joneses, or selfishness, or self-righteousness, every one of us may be, even right now, as you are sitting there listening to this, have that voice in your ear that is saying, lie with me. Come on, do it. And if we want to escape unhinged on the other side then we right now must resolve to have a healthy fear of the Lord. The writer of Proverbs tells us that that is the beginning of wisdom. And God was indeed with Joseph, and he gave him the ability here to, to resist, but Joseph had to, had to make the decision to be with God as well. Because it's easy to say to say no once, and after we say no once to something, it's then easy to be prideful and be uh, happy about how great it was and how strong we are for saying no. We need to take heed, lest we fall. But temptation, even in our resistance, will often come to us like a high tide. Come onto the beach and back. And it might come back stronger. And it might come back stronger. And after a while, it works like an erosion on our soul. Temptation will wear you down. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her. To lie beside her or to be with her. Imagine every day, Joseph, come on, no one's gonna know. Come on, Joseph, my husband is always gone and he never gives me attention, unlike you. I wish I had someone like you. You only live once, Joseph, come on. And on and on the cycle goes. And words can only go so far. And when your heart has fantasized about something for so long, it only takes the moment of opportunity to let it go. Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and here's the key, and none of the men of the house was in was there in the house she caught him by the garment saying lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house now 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 tells us that no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it But have you ever considered what it is that God will provide for us to resist the temptation? Yes, there may be interruptions. Yes, there might be uh, circumstances or just the staying of your hand from doing what you're going to do. But every single one of these can be traced back to the sovereign hand of God and his presence with us, keeping us from doing such a thing. As he is with us, we need to be with him if we're not clinging to his presence if we are not clinging to him uh, and his hand on our lives then we are going to be clinging to something else so we need to cling to god's presence during trials and temptations and third and finally We ought to rest in God's presence in suffering. We ought to rest in God's presence in suffering. There's nothing that uh, that makes you feel more alone and helpless than when you're suffering. You can have the best support, the most loving people around you, and it is still easy to listen to that voice that says to you, you know what? no one knows no one understands what you're going through no one sees that no one knows and maybe you maybe you feel the love and it's all good in that way but I can tell you from experience that lying on your back on a cold cat scan can make you feel very alone That when you, uh, when the nurse injects the contrast dye into your veins and you feel the cold liquid running throughout your body, you can feel very alone. Waiting for that call can be very lonesome. Or maybe you've seen the other side of it. Maybe your life has been turned completely upside down, unexpectedly, and very rapidly. People have been great, but the day has come when you come home to an empty, silent home which was once brimming with noise and life, and as you sit at the table for supper or lie in bed by yourself, the loneliness can be maddening. Or maybe you're like Curtis Flowers. Curtis Flowers was a well-liked, mild-mannered African-American man from Winona, Mississippi. But when four people were murdered in a furniture store, fingers were pointed at him with little to no evidence to support his guilt. Because of the complexities of the judicial system along with racial bias and discrimination, Flowers was tried six times for the same crime. He spent 23 years of his life on death row as an innocent man. But it wasn't until the podcast in the dark shed light on the injustice of his conviction and the lack of evidence and strong evidence to point to someone else that Flowers was released in December of 2019. Even though this was a win for the innocently accused, Curtis Flowers lost 23 years of his life. You know, our lives can quickly turn in ways that we we never imagined. Whatever was, uh, whenever... Whatever comes our way, we need to right now resolve to rest in God's presence. Look at verse 13. It records the aftermath of Joseph's integrity. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of this house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, This Hebrew servant, which, by the way, is sort of a racial slur, uh, whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Well, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, um, this was the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison." This whole story sort of reminds me of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them, unbelievers, uh, people of the world, in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. That's exactly what Mrs. Potiphar did here to Joseph. That is exactly what our culture does. If you do not bow down to the sinful ways of the world, guess what? You're going to have a target on you. But again, verse 21 shows us hope in the midst of suffering in any form. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast. Friends, this is our God. That when life comes crumbling around us, what is it that is going to get us through? It is the Lord who is with us and the Lord who shows us his faithful love. He keeps hope alive in the darkest time. Again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, again, the Lord made it succeed. Who made it succeed? Joseph? No, it was the Lord. The Lord made it succeed. And whatever you're going through when you have nothing to hold on to you can let go because god is there holding on to you and we need to rest in that hope now friends chapter 39 here uh the phrase the lord was with joseph happens four times the covenant name of the lord yahweh is mentioned eight times and it's only mentioned by the narrator The Lord's abiding presence with Joseph and his work on Joseph's behalf was a continuation of what the Lord God, uh, his plan was to to fully restore what was lost back in Genesis chapter 3. Prior to Genesis chapter 3, God's people walked with God freely, unhindered, unadulterated. They had access and full communion with him. When they sinned, They lost that full presence, and we feel that effect today, even. From then on, God was initiating his plan to again dwell with his people. We see glimpses of it in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We see it in the judges. We see it in the exodus. We see it in the tabernacle. We saw it in the kings. We saw it in the prophets. And then there was 400 years of silence. And then a baby cried. And with that breath and a cry, John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory uh, as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and after jesus was resurrected the last thing that he told his disciples was exactly what you and i need to hear today in matthew chapter 28 verse 20 he said behold i am with you even to the end of the age Whatever we face, whether it be our terror or pleasure, we have this hope that Jesus is with us. His death and resurrection and his ascension have been the proof that he is with us to the end. And again, when the end comes, we still have hope. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. It's a glorious truth for us The dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away now that sounds wonderful but i need to tell you before i close that this abiding hope this abiding presence that god gives it's an exclusive club it's available to everyone but given to a few It's only given to those who come to the end of themselves and place all of their hope and all of their trust in Jesus. Whatever you have thrown at you today, you can rest and you can have peace because God is with you. You can have the Spirit of God in your life Through faith in Christ alone, whatever you're facing today, why not give up yourself and finally trust in Christ Jesus? He will be with you, even to the end of the age and far beyond that. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on a schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora, Knowing Christ and Making Him Known